Welcome to Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast where we talk with experts to help you build your worldview. I'm your host, May Lily Lee. These podcasts originate from video interviews you can find on our website, praxiscircle.com. Become a member by registering at our website and subscribe or follow this podcast so you can get our latest podcast releases. Today we feature part two of Doug Monroe's three-part interview with Sir Roger Scruton, philosopher, writer, composer, and teacher, and a man who British Prime Minister Boris Johnson called the greatest modern conservative thinker. In this episode, Doug and Sir Roger continue their discussion on the culture of repudiation versus affirmation, and they discuss definitions of freedom and the sacred. Let's listen. Um, this this is uh, a personal observation of of Doug, but um, how how philosophers, uh, many f- philosophers with beautiful philosophy, live repugnant lives to me. Mm. So my question is, um, uh, should should our Praxis Circle members look at how philosophers live their lives as well as their philosophy, and how important is uh, doing what you yes. say you're going to you know is important? Philosophers are not really one breed. There are very public philosophers uh, who do lead quite repulsive lives, like Michel Foucault and um, and um, his circle. But in history, I don't think philosophers have behaved that badly. If you look back to the the, the, the first great um, public educator among philosophers, namely Socrates. He was also a kind of model to his fellow citizens and a martyr to, to, um, to the virtues that he preached. Uh, so I think um, it's much more part of the academic world that people behave badly uh, rather than the philosophical world. And when philosophers have free run of a of an academy, they're like a fox in a chicken run. You know, nothing is safe. Uh, thank you. Um, is the key to reason the law of non-contradiction? Are and I love this. Are self-referential contradictions? You know what that is. Always a tip off to claims that are likely untrue. <clears throat> Is that too much? No, no, it's just a huge question. The the, the law of non-contradiction is a a necessary truth. I mean, the truth that not both P and not P. um, There is no way of denying that without the argument for denying it collapsing because the argument for denying it would have to lean on it. And so um, it's a necessary truth. No problem there, and logic, after all, is the science of such necessary truths and how they are connected and how to deduce from them what follows. And I've always believed that logic is one of the most important foundations of philosophy, of philosophical thinking, and one of the great achievements, actually, of modern philosophy to to have uh, to have got it right, uh, and to have discovered that first of all, that logic 
is uh, something different from mathematics. That, that um, uh, secondly, that you cannot derive mathematics from logic, although you can get very close to it. Um, and thirdly, that that uh, that the idea of alternative logics will always lead to a realm of illusion. This is something, by the way, this way of looking at things comes to me from the tradition of, of Frego, Russell, Tarski, uh, and um, Gödel, and so on. It's not the kind of thing that continental philosophers tend to respect, but um, that's why their, their writings are so interesting. Um, Bertrand Russell said that this of Hegel's logic you know, that um, Hegel's logic is extremely interesting because from a contradiction, everything follows. Worldview. Moving to worldview. Mm. Um, and uh, I have a long intro here, but basically worldview was supposedly invented by Immanuel Kant. And, yeah. and you're one of the leading experts. So, um, you know, there's lots of definitions of worldview out there. I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for why would that word have need to be invented by him at that time? Yeah. Well, Kant, Kant had the view that his philosophy, what you call critical philosophy, uh, was in, in, in the task, involved in the task of setting limits to our reasoning showing that beyond that limit you cannot go, but also um, showing the, the legitimate use of reason in various areas. So uh, the, the, the idea that the world is accessible independently of our reasoning is something that he repudiated. He said, you know, that, that we can't get to uh, a picture of the world as it is in itself, independently of human thinking, it's human. Th but we can get a picture of the world as we, th as it is presented to our thought, and that's part of what he meant by Weltanschauung. Um, but he he didn't, unlike many people who followed, he didn't think there was a, a choice between the various worldviews. Uh, there is the basic worldview, which comes from our reasoning powers in themselves, and that is something that we will eventually share because our reasoning powers take us towards it. I get Does exactly what you mean. He, he, he had his own need for the word, and that's developed into a yeah. different meaning. Exactly. It's, a different it's developed meaning into a more subjective yeah, it's, um, it's, understanding. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's an insight I didn't have. Wow. Okay. Um, here's... Uh, in, it's my opinion that um, philosophers are paid to design their own worldviews. So uh, mm. uh, you, you may disagree with that. And, mm. uh, but what I want to ask you is, can you describe your own worldview? Yes. Um, to describe my own worldview in a few simple sentences is, of course, difficult. And the, I wouldn't have written all these books um, if it was an easy task. Um, I should add that I've never been paid for, for, for producing a worldview, um, and I'm, I'm unusual 
among my colleagues in, in the Anglophone world, in Britain and America and, and, and similar countries, in having a worldview. Most of my professional colleagues in universities would be completely nonplussed if you ask them what their worldview is. They might say, well, you know, I, I believe in, um, I, I vote Labour, um, I like fish and chips, you know, etc. But um, I, I would so um, I would say that my worldview is very definitely a, a, a late Christian worldview, a vision of the world as fallen but capable of salvation, uh, and of the human condition as one in which uh, the relation with the other is the most important fact. Please explain your move to the right in a few stages in your life, okay. you know, yeah. personally in your history, autobiography. Yes, I, I, um, I was brought up in a lower-class working class. Well, not, let me say again. I was brought up in a lower-class family by a socialist father, labor voter, trade unionist, and um, taught to see the surrounding world in terms of a, a kind of uh, epic of class conflict. Now, class conflict was everywhere, and we were on the side of the victims against the oppressors. Um, on the other hand, my father was also a lover of beauty who introduced me to the countryside and all the beautiful things that England contained, and, uh, and which our fellow countrymen had fought to defend, uh, uh, and uh, beauty is, is always points to the superior things rather than these inferior and oppressed things. So I was always torn anyway between um, this leftist vision of the oppressed proletariat to whom I was supposed to belong uh, and another vision of, a, of a, a beautiful and ordered place to which I could aspire. Um, uh, and... So through getting to love music and poetry and, uh, and the like, I moved automatically, unconsciously perhaps, but automatically towards that higher thing. And, and at a certain stage, uh, um, I became um, quite detached from political thinking uh, as I was, when I was at university, although still, I suppose, on the left, because everybody was. Then I went to Paris to France, and in, in 1968, I was in Paris at the time of the barricades the, and the, um, the, the 68 revolutionary moment, uh, and I observed all this uh, shenanigans in the street, and I, I asked myself the question, well, who am I on the side of? These spoiled middle-class children throwing bricks through the... Uh, shop windows of hard-working working-class people or the or the hard-working working-class people it was obvious what the answer was going to be um, so I asked my student friends what what on earth do you hope to achieve by this and they gave me various books to read Marx Foucault Althusser um, I read this stuff and I said this is complete charlatanism uh, th th there's nothing said here about a, a, a future that's better than the lovely bourgeois France that you've inherited and which I love. So why should I join you rather than those policemen over there? So I set out to work out my own 
philosophy in response to this. And then with it, I went back to Cambridge to do research and immediately found that I was, uh, you know, I met people there I could talk to who were on the right. And I, I saw immediately that I agreed with them. Wonderful. So um, just again, a little more bi biographical comment on, your, on a move toward Christianity to some extent mm. later in life. Um, yeah, I, I was um, conf confirmed in the Anglican Church when I was when I was young, um, though my parents didn't know that because they weren't um, Anglicans um, or anything. Uh, but I I drifted away from it. I was living in France for a bit. I was very attracted to the Catholic Church, the rural Catholic Church as described by you know, Mauriac and Balzac and people like that. Um, then I lived in Italy for a little bit. I became more impressed by the Catholic Church. So I've always, I've always uh, hankered after that kind of uh, ceremonial presence in one's life that the Catholic Church provides. But, you know, the theology is incredibly difficult to accept for a sceptical intellect like mine. Uh, and over the years, I drifted away completely. But I could never bring myself to be quite an atheist because I recognized that, um, that human beings have a need for the sacred. They have a need for holiness, a need to aspire beyond uh, the trivialities of this world. And that need is very deep in me. I found my way back towards the Anglican Church because that provides that image of the ho of holiness in the heart of ordinary life, and and I've learned to live with my scepticism, um, recognizing that that what what we do have is our monotheistic conception of God, which is a which is a wonderful gift, which we share with the Jews and the Muslims, of course, uh, and the Hindus in their in their own way. And on top of that, the story of uh, of Christ's passion, which is an, a, a kind of revelation of what humanity is capable of. So that's as far as my Christian religion goes. But I do um, I don't make any show of it except to go to church and play the organ every Sunday. And fine job you did. Um, I am very interested in the concept of life world. Uh, the mm. concept of life world relates to worldview and is interesting. Could you explain life world? Is it the same or different from worldview? Yeah. The, the concept of, of the life world um, was introduced, I think, by Husserl, a, a phenomenologist in the early 20th, well, he introduced it in the mid-20th century, I think, um, his idea was that the, this, the life world, the Lebenswelt, is the world as represented in our day-to-day -day concepts and in, the, um, in our responses to each other, our ways of, of um, bringing together all the things that we need to amalgamate in order to understand them. Uh, and so it's distinct from the material world uh, the, the world of objects conceived as science would conceive them. So it's a bit like what I would say about my cognitive dualism. There are two ways 
of seeing the world, seeing when I when I approach it as a. No, let me say that again. In the the life world, there are persons who act freely, who take responsibility for things, who are accountable to each other, uh, 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 and who see the world as organised by that those concepts. Um, none of those concepts have any place in science. Science doesn't have room for the concept of a person. It, it has a room for the concept of a human being, but a person is something that acts freely and accountability, has a first-person perspective and all the rest. And there's no need for such a concept in science, nor is there a possibility for it. But we use that concept in organizing our world, and the world so organized is the life world. All right. Um, so, what is it to be a conservative? <clears throat> to, to be a conservative is to be honest about your attachments to what you've inherited. That's to say, to show that they're yours, to defend them from abuse, and if assuming you love them, to build some of your life on them. And my view is that, that all, it's a necessary truth that all people are attached to what they love, and it's also highly probable that all people love some aspects of what they have, what's brought them into being, their family, uh, their community, their customs, their laws, uh, and Conservatism is simply a generalization of that feeling. Uh, it's a very positive feeling, but it's not ideological. It's not about some uh, imaginary future towards which we're advancing with clenched fists. It's a, it's a, a gentle uh, thing, and a, a disposition to defend what needs you for its defense. And um, that's why... Uh, conservatives always have the disadvantage in any argument because they're merely defending what is in all its imperfections. They're not presenting some idealized utopia that could never be in any case. Does it relate to oikos as a goal of life, making a home? What is that and yeah. how do we do it, again, for the, for the masses? Yeah, I, I've, I coined the, the word oikophilia, the love of the home, as a very base, to name a very basic human instinct, which we, I think we all have, which feeds into the politics of ordinary people, which underlies feelings of national identity, underlies um, feelings of community, and is the thing on which politicians draw when they're not just offering meaningless promises. Um, what do you say to someone, I know what the answer is because I saw your notes, what do you just say to someone who says that, and I think this is, a real, this is the problem to me mm -hmm. with the word, someone who says that being a conservative is simply getting to keep all of the marbles with power to allocate them to yourself. Yes. Um, there's a much better way of getting those marbles, and that is to sweep everything away and then gather them to yourself, which is essentially what socialism is about. 
Of course, you promise to be distributing them to everybody, but the fact is, once you've got them in your hands, you don't. And that's the history of the 20th century. All right, this is, this is sort of, I don't know if you'll have a, a real long comment to this question, but I, I do think that some of this is utilitarian analysis of data. To what extent could conservatives say that it's not a matter of being on the right or the left, but being correct? Yeah, the, the, the distinction between left and right is, of course, in a certain sense, arbitrary. Uh, you know, the people, the, the, the third, at the Estates General, the French Revolution, the third estate sat on the king's left and the nobility and, and ecclesiastics on his right. So that gave rise to this distinction. It could have been the other way round, and it was the other way round for everyone except the king, when you think about it. Um, and, you know, uh, over this ensuing 200 years, completely different meanings have been attached to this. And I suspect that today, what is fundamentally understood by left is the support for the underdog, uh, the, the desire for a a distributive uh, state which will which will confiscate property from the wealthy and powers also from the wealthy and transfer them to the those uh, who don't yet have those advantages and um, and what is understood by the right is obviously the opposite of that plus something else something more important to me which is the conservative element that the the sense of 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 heritage and the need to conserve it. Um, I think a conservative would say, yeah, in that sense, he was on the right. Uh, conservatives don't like the growth of the redistributive state, um, not because they don't want people at, at the bottom of society to be helped, or they don't, or, or, and maybe they also want to redistribute some of the wealth. I think most people now would like to do that because it's completely got out of control. But I think they would distrust the state as a means for doing this uh, and believe much more in the growth of private charity and the, uh, and the feeling of community as the primary way of redistributing things. Very good. Um, this is a question that I may boil down to one. I feel like I need a sort of a hard statement about... Um, uh, philosopher to whoever you want to pick out. Uh, it, who is the most harmful to the common good modern philosopher alive? <laughs> well, uh, you can say two or whatever, no, but uh, um, uh, what really do we need to watch out for, so to speak? Um, yes. I think a great deal of harm has been done by Peter Singer with his utilitarianism in influencing ordinary people into thinking that, that you can solve moral questions by simple by mathematical calculation and that individual responsibilities are not part of it. I think that, that, that uh, is, he, he is someone who's done a lot of harm. Um, but on the whole, philosophers don't influence things very much. So I think I'd be, it'd be hard-pressed to say 
you know, there is certainly no philosopher today whose harmful influence compares remotely with that of Marx. Excellent. All right. Uh, the next question is, uh, this is one of the, what you would call a dreadful question because it lumps everything into the, uh, into one category, but, mm -hmm. um, please talk about what a recent article cited as your three key transcendentals, person, freedom, and the sacred. We really got a week of lectures on that. Yeah. You know, here, and I, I just need a capsulization. Somehow. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, yes, in order to understand our condition now, and generally, but especially now, we need to revisit the concept of the person, see what it is that is distinctive about persons as, as opposed to other animals, and, and why be living as a person brings with it obligations, attachments, and all the rest. So I think that's a, a fundamental concept. Um, and along with that is the concept of freedom, what it is to act freely, uh, and, and it, freedom has been radically misdescribed by all the um, liberationists of the 1960s and beyond, uh, who, who've seen it simply as throwing off shackles and being at last liberated to be yourself. The fact is that true freedom means accountability, not being liberated to be yourself, but uh, concentrating on your duties to others. And uh, that is something which I think needs to be uh, constantly rehearsed and understood. And um, it can only be understood if we if we have give proper place to the concept of the sacred, as I say, the the things that cannot be done, the things that must be revered, uh, the distinctions between the the moments when you're as it were, on the verge of the transcendental and those when you're just uh, engaged in everyday life. Uh, and um, you only learn about these moments. You can learn about them from religion, but if you haven't got religion, you only learn about them through serious art and, uh, and through serious exercise in the countryside and through serious human relations. And all those things uh, lie apart from the diet of many people today. This, this is a bit of a follow-on question, but it's important to me. Uh, is the person, the subject, or the uh, individual, Imago Dei, the highest being in creation? Um, uh, in, hmm. are, are human beings the ends to which our means as humans should, should strive to serve, the Kantian thing? Um, um, yeah. Uh, it's not a yes or no question. I, I'm not no, sure. no. Um, The humanists think that the human being is the uh, ultimate source of value and object of value um, because humanists explicitly deny that there is anything beyond the human. Uh, I would say that, it, that you know, I don't want to explicitly deny anything so metaphysical as that. Um, I would acknowledge that the person is the foundation of the moral life, as Kant points out. 
Um, but I, do, I don't think that persons are simply human beings. They're human beings as they appear in the Lebenswelt, in the world of life, which is a different thing. And there they do appear as the Imago Dei. That's undoubtedly the case. Um, uh, and this is brought out radically by the distinction between the look that a person gives you and the look that a dog gives you, for instance. That's Sir Roger Scruton, interviewed by Doug Monroe. Sir Roger has taken us on an intellectual journey to draw connections between philosophy and worldview. Be sure to tune in to episode three for the final interview with Sir Roger Scruton. And subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts. And visit us at praxiscircle.com. Thanks for listening to Building Worldviews.